Hi, my name is Pat Cook, and you are listening to Zombies au Fromage of Terror and Terroir, likely the only place on the internet where you can hear a review about a zombie movie and get a recommendation for cheese, all within 30 minutes. Here we are, early April 2020, and stuck in self-isolation. Maybe you're going bonkers, and I don't blame you. I'm really an introvert, and the older I get, the more I enjoy self-isolation. But I miss being at work, I miss being at church, I miss slowly meandering my way through a grocery store, I miss going for long walks on a beach. Anyway, hang in there, folks. This won't last forever. It's lasting too long, but it won't last forever. So while you're stuck inside and you want to watch some zombies, let me be your guide. This episode's movie is so much fun. It's from 2009, and it's called Dead Snow. I had watched this movie several years ago, and I felt like trying it again. I know that I enjoyed it more the second time, even if it was pretty good the first time. The movie takes place on Easter vacation, and that's what's coming up this weekend, when I wrote this anyway which is actually a totally random coincidence. But if you can watch Lethal Weapon at Christmas, you can watch Dead Snow at Easter. So, as always, spoilers beware. I'll give you some time to track the movie down and watch it, and then we'll all meet back here. Dead Snow is a film from Norway. It's low budget, for sure. There's no CGI, and all the effects are practical effects. Makeup, fake blood, and all that. If you're looking for high-budget action adventure, well, this isn't it. If you're looking for a silly movie with jump scares and horror, this is it. The scenery is beautiful, the characters are likable, and the villains are scary. The premise is more akin to Pirates of the Caribbean or Indiana Jones than Day of the Dead or World War Z. I mean, it's not an action-adventure, but the cause of the zombification is supernatural. Curses and revenge beyond the grave and hoarded treasures. The cold opening, and I mean that in the sense that there is a scene before the credits roll, but it's also literally true because it happens in the snowy mountains, is set to music written by Edvard Grieg, who is likely Norway's most famous composer. The song is called In the Hall of the Mountain King, written for the play Pier Gint by Henrik Ibsen. bbc.co.uk describes the scene of the play where this music is performed. Grieg's Pier Gint Suite tells the story of a young boy, Pier Gint, who falls in love with a girl, but is not allowed to marry her. He runs away into the mountains, but is captured by trolls, who take them take him to their king. Pyrgint tries to escape, but is chased by the trolls and runs into the Troll King, but eventually gets away. And the original lyrics are fun. 
Slay him, the Christian man's son has seduced the fairest maid of the mountain king. Slay him, slay him. May I hack him on the fingers? May I tug him by the hair? Who, hey, let me bite him in the haunches. Shall he be boiled into broth and brie to me? Shall he roast on a spit or be browned in a stew pan? Ice to your blood, friends. Uh, yeah, good times. The song has been covered and sampled by many, many bands for a century, and you've likely heard the song in more than one place. Besides the obvious nod to the Norwegian composer, the play Peer Gint is not far removed from the plot of the movie. Running in the mountains, being captured, being brought, at least once for one character, to the headquarters of the mountains, of the monsters, I should say. Yeah, there's no stolen maiden, but there's stolen gold, which warrants being reclaimed. Plus, Edvard Grieg apparently drew inspiration from Norwegian folk tunes, and Piergint is a Norwegian folktale. So, it all works. And the feeling that this song elicits is dark, and fun, and whimsical, and dangerous. You don't know who this is yet, but it turns out that she's Sarah, and Sarah is about to meet an unpleasant fate. She was not roasted on a spit of brown or browned in a saucepan. She was, in the words of Gollum, raw and wriggling. And that's the opening. Brilliant opening. And then we meet more characters. There are two vehicles filled with pre-med students heading to spend an Easter vacation in a cabin in the snow-covered mountains. Now, to help you out, Vegard is driving the guy's car and his girlfriend is Sarah. Sarah is supposed to be already waiting at the cabin for the rest of the people to come. In the passenger seat is Martin. He has glasses and is in a relationship with Hannah, who has dreadlocks. Erland is in the back seat. He's blonde, and he reminded me of Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's a movie nerd. And then there's Roy, who's described as horny. He has short, dark hair. The other two girls in the girls' car are Liv, who is blonde, and she's the driver. And then there's Chris, who has long dark hair and is sitting in the back seat. It took me a long time to remember who was who, so if you like knowing these things, then there you go. They arrive at the parking spot next to a lake or a river. Vegard takes a snowmobile up to the cabin to unlock it and start a fire. Everyone else walks the 45 minutes uphill through the snow. Along the way, you see the beauty of the country. The mountains with miles and miles of untouched snow. No civilization near. No cell signal. It's gorgeous. Along the way up the hill, they chat. There's a conversation about movies. Erland asks the question, How many movies start with a group of friends going on a trip with no cell phone? Several movies are mentioned, Friday the 13th, Evil Dead 1 and 2, and something called April Fool's Day, which they said was from 1984, but it's 1986. Anyway, if you notice the movies, well, Friday the 13th originally took place at a camp in the wilderness, where there are cabins. Evil Dead 1 and 2 take place at a camp in the woods, and they find a book and that releases a curse. Not exactly the same as Dead Snow, but not too far away either. And then April Fool's Day, the least known of these classic movie horror flicks. Well, this is the IMDb description. 
Nine college students staying at a friend's remote island mansion begin to fall victim to an unseen murderer over the April Fool's Day weekend. That's pretty close, actually, to what was happening in Dead Snow. Folks, these movies are, well, Easter eggs, really, letting the astute watcher know that something bad is going to happen to this group of young adults in the style of slasher films from the 1980s. At about the 14-minute mark, the suspense builds. The arrival of a stranger, and not with a pleasant knock on the door. He had to terrorize people first, of course. So he comes inside, has a yucky coffee, drinks a beer, and methodically rolls a cigarette. And he tells a story. During the Second World War, the area was occupied by a force of Einsatzgruppe, which uh, is probably bad German. (laughs) But they were paramilitary death squads of Nazis. This group, led by Colonel Herzog, were brutal and harsh in how they treated the locals. For three years, they occupied the land. As the war was coming to a close and the defeat of the Nazis was looming, the soldiers looted the villagers. They took all the valuables. However, the villagers revolted and ambushed the Nazis and even killing many of them, using whatever weapons they could find. This drove the survivors, including Herzog, into the mountains, where it was assumed that they froze to death. The stranger advises the young students not to awaken the evil presence that still abides in the region. He leaves and dies in his tent that night with his throat slashed and his body gored by something. The stranger's story awakes some fears in our heroes, and Vegard takes off on the snowmobile to find Sarah. Instead of finding Sarah, he finds a tent, and the stranger's been killed, mauled even, torn apart, and there are boot prints leading away from the tent. Vegard realizes that this was no animal, and he steps up the pace of trying to find Sarah. He falls into a pit, realizes this is a Nazi hideout and makes all kinds of unpleasant discoveries, including Sarah's severed head. The people back at the cabin make their own discovery. Erlen finds a box in the floorboards of the cabin. How they had never been found before, I don't know. But anyway, they open it up and find gold treasures. And then another movie quote, this time Indiana Jones talking to Short Round in the Temple of Doom. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. They all grab some gold, and they don't think twice about it. And now, the gross scene. I don't mean blood and guts. I mean, Erland goes out to the outhouse, and sits down and does his business, and then Chris joins him. She sits on his lap and sucks his fingers. I mean, hello? (laughs) He's sitting on the toilet, and you put his fingers in your mouth? Well, takes all kinds, I guess. Anyway, they have sex in the outhouse, almost as if they have to fulfill the requirement that a young couple has to have sex in every slasher movie. Have you seen Cabin in the Woods? If you like movies that are smart and self-aware, and if you're okay with horror movies, which (laughs) I'm guessing you are, because who else is going to listen to a podcast about zombie movies, then you should watch Cabin in the Woods. So while the new couple is doing it in the outhouse, we see a hand reach down and grab a piece of gold that was dropped on the way out. Erlen goes back into the cabin and the monster begins to stalk its prey. Why it didn't attack both Erlen and Chris at the same time, I don't know. As we come to know the antagonists of the movie, we see that they don't behave like typical zombies. They probably don't behave like typical Nazis either, but I can't say that with any certainty. 
We see Chris getting attacked by something quick, and the rest of the people going looking for her. They find Sarah's backpack, which indeed, which indicates that she had indeed made it back to the cabin, but then went missing. And then, shocker, they find Chris's severed head. And that's when the zombies begin their assault on the remaining people in the cabin. Martin, Hannah, Erland, Roy, and Liv. Erland, the astute cinemaphile that he is, gives the advice. Don't get bitten. The infection will spread throughout your body, so don't get bitten. Now, I would say likely that advice based on typical zombie lore might generally be a good idea if you're facing zombies, but it doesn't seem to apply in this movie. The stranger in the tent did not turn. He just died. There are some times in zombie movies or shows where severed heads can continue living or semi-living, undead living or whatever after they've been removed from the bodies. The governor in The Walking Dead, this was part of his raison d'etre, wanting to find a cure so he could bring back Penny, his daughter. Okay, not actually his daughter. The novel series shows that Penny is actually his niece. But that's not important right now. The point is, it doesn't appear that these Nazi zombies have the power to infect survivors and create more zombies. Because these zombies really aren't much like zombies at all. They're more like ghosts with bodies. Think of a typical villain in Scooby-Doo, like the Minor 49er or something. Now, make that villain actually scary and murderous. Well, that's the gist of these things. They run, which has some precedent in zombie lore, sure. They're killed with brain trauma, too. But they use weapons and tools, like knives and binoculars. They claim trophies, i.e. heads of their victims. They pant and breathe hard. In fact, the breath even comes out like vapor, as if it's warm in the cold Norwegian mountains. They feel pain. They stalk their prey. And they're able to do more than just claw at their opponents. They can fight. They maul and tear apart. And only sometimes eat. They give orders. They climb trees. They are not typical zombies. But they do a good job of killing. Erland has a glorious death as he's ripped out through the window. This leaves four people and they decide to make a plan. The girls, Hannah and Liv, will run for the vehicle and Martin and Roy will distract the zombies, holding them off until the girls can get help. So the guys lock themselves in the cabin and with the assistance of a Molotov cocktail gone wrong, they manage to burn the cabin down. <sighs> All that alcohol and unusable to fend off the zombies. It's a tragedy. The last third of the movie is, as far as zombie movies go, a beautiful thing. It's what you want in a zombie flick. You want to see z people fighting back. You want to see blood and guts and gore. You want to see happiness mixed with sadness. You want to see action and drama. And baby, it delivers. Martin, a true survivor, hanging by a zombie intestine over a cliff, stitching up his own bleeding neck with fishing line. Liv, feisty to the end, seeing her intestines being pulled out and detonates a stick grenade as her last act. Hannah, buried alive, using gravity to help her find her way out of the snow and joining her friends. Martin and Roy, using tools on the oncoming horde 
like the villagers back in 1945. Mallets, knives, scythes, hatchets, even a, a chainsaw and a nice homage to the evil dead. Vegard, arriving like the cavalry with a snowmobile, which turns out to be a pretty fearsome weapon. It's an awesome two minutes, starting at about one hour, ten minutes in. Vegard's grand death as five zombies with five knives tearing him apart like torture chambers or public executions of old. Roy, his intestines stuck in a tree, running with a head injury. And Martin, amputating his own arm once he realizes he's bitten to make sure the infection doesn't spread. And then the helpless look on his face when he gets bitten again. And I'm not sure if it was in the upper leg or actually in the groin, but not wanting to use the chainsaw to fix that one. <laughs> Go figure. There's so much good stuff in this. Plus, since it's in Norwegian and has English subtitles, it's a foreign film. Which some people watch so they can brag about it. Ah oh, yes, I watched this elegant film last night out of Norway, which highlighted how the lingering angst that Nazi occupation in the country from the Second World War has affected the region and even made the country practically alive with memories of Schadenfreude. There's something like that. In most episodes of this podcast, I highlight the facepalm. That moment when someone does something so stupid and it changes the entire story for the worst. I gotta tell you, there are a few facepalms in this movie. Taking the gold from under the cabin's floorboards. Not a wise idea, since the old fella told you that the land was cursed. Generally ignoring his advice was also a bad idea. Setting the cabin on fire with the Molotov cocktail was an accident, but it was a costly one. But the facepalm that I choose for this movie is Hannah's death. It was an accident, of course. Martin had bloodlust upon him. His adrenaline was shooting through his veins, and he was likely having fun at this point. But when his hatchet lands in his girlfriend's neck, after all she had done to survive, oh, it just kills me. What a horrible way to end. She was a fighter and a survivor. She was smart and she dies accidentally at the hands of her boyfriend. Sorry to see you go, Hannah. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. And now it's time for the gotcha moment. That excellent kill. This was not an easy choice. So I think I'm going to declare a tie. Why do I have to choose? I made up the rules for this podcast so I can change them if I want. Here are some runner-ups. Vegard's demise of being drawn and quartered was great. The chainsaw did a fantastic job running through the zombies too. Hannah kicking that guy's head like a football was well-deserved. But here are the best, in my humble opinion. Number one, Erlen's death was excellent. The eyes, the ripping apart, the lungs ending up on the floor. Maybe it was his brain. Whatever the case, it was inside, and it was yucky. And as far as movie horror deaths go, it was top notch. And number two, I really liked the snowmobile tread making mincemeat of the zombie on the ground. 
it shredded him to tiny bits. And that is a use of a snowmobile that I have never found the need for, but it worked. So, cheers to Erland, and cheers to the Don't Tread on Me, Zombie. R.I.P. I want to thank the YouTube channel Carnage Counts for their five-minute video summarizing all the deaths in this movie. They counted 48 deaths in 91 minutes, giving us a death averaging about every two minutes. If all you want is to watch the deaths, go there. But the movie is a fun zombie movie anyway, so you really should just watch the whole thing. When it came time to pair this movie with a cheese, I went in a number of directions. Norway has a cheese called Brunost, which is very brown. I'd certainly be willing to try it, but with the world the way it is right now, fancy and exotic cheeses are certainly not going to make it to my local grocery store in rural Nova Scotia, Canada. In fact, even finding Jarlsberg cheese, likely Norway's most famous cheese, is hard to find right now. But if I consider that Norway is part of the region of the world called Scandinavia, I have a little more luck finding a Scandinavian cheese. Havarti from Denmark is a wonderful cheese. It's pretty popular too. It has a subtle flavor and it tastes and it even smells like butter. It's smooth and is an excellent choice to eat with crackers. So I'm going to take some Havarti and I'm going to eat uh, a pita chip right now. so smooth it feels like it's melting in your mouth this is a particularly mild Havarti there are some Havartis that are strong and you can also find Havarti that's spiced with dill or fennel seeds or whatever there's all kinds of different Havartis jalapeno is a, is a popular one too. This was just a plain Jane Havarti, kind of a light pale yellow color. Anyway, very good cheese. Dead Snow has a sequel, Dead Snow 2, Red vs. Dead, which came out five years after the original. It even has some stars from the first movie, although I'm not entirely sure how. I haven't seen it yet, but I may review it in an upcoming episode. The first one was so much fun and you know how I feel about sequels. Well, maybe you don't. There are enough good zombie movies out there that I don't need to track down less than stellar movies for this podcast. But on the other hand, I have the time. Hey, thanks for spending some time with me today. I'm nobody special. My opinions about zombie movies are based on experience, and I do research on the movies I review. But in the end, they're still only my opinions. I'm really glad that you've listened and I appreciate your hanging out with me for half an hour. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen on most major podcasting platforms or at anchor.com slash pat-cook. You can reach me at zombiesofromage at gmail.com. I'm slowly working on putting all my podcasts onto YouTube as audio tracks. Why don't you drop me a line? Let me know what you think of the show. 
Let me know any suggestions of movies you'd like me to review. My next movie is a doozy. It's likely going to be bad, yes, but it could be a fun bad. It's called Jurassic Thunder, and it combines two things that I like a lot. Zombies, yeah, and dinosaurs. Weaponized dinosaurs. Could be a blast. Track it down, watch it, join me for my next episode. I will leave you with a quote. David Wong gave us these poignant words. The zombie looks like a man, walks like a man, eats and otherwise functions fully, yet is devoid of the spark. It represents the nagging doubt that lays deep in the heart of even the most zealous believer. Behind all of your pretty songs and stained glass, this is what you really are. Shambling meat. Our true fear of the zombie was never that its bite would turn us into one of them. Our fear is that we are already zombies. My name is Pat Cook, and I hope you fare well.